to ask Mark if I could share a little bit on uh, the message, that the, the series he's been doing on uh, knowing who we are in Christ. And so uh, it, really, it really triggered me when he began to share on this that I was one of those people that picked up Jesus. And Jesus became, as he put it in his shirt, I won't do that, but he, he picked up Jesus. And Jesus, I carried Jesus with me. I went to church, and I was one of those people that basically went to church every day because my parents said so, and we, we and it, so I began to enjoy going to church to a point once I got a little older, and, and I learned all the parables, and I knew, all, I knew the Bible. I started teaching Sunday school, and I was a youth leader, and I, was, I got really involved in the church, but there was still something missing. But I had Jesus with me. I knew that. I knew I had Jesus, and he was my Savior. But it, was, it seemed to be I would teach the parables. I teach Sunday school stories, but then one day, we were in a small Bible study, and we began to uh, talk about uh, the Holy Spirit and stuff, the, how, how the three-part being. And, of course, I was brought up in a church that taught all that, but just understanding the principles of how that works. I had Jesus, my Savior. But then, and it was a lot of, I knew the knowledge. I knew the Scripture. I memorized a lot of Scripture. I knew the Scripture. And uh, I was probably married. I had two or three kids by then. And at this Bible study, all of a sudden, it's just like something happened inside of me. And before that, I was like Paul. He would say, how wretched man that I am, the things I want to do, I, I don't do, and the things I do, I don't want to do, and stuff like that. And that's the way I felt, because I kind of swore like a trooper, and I was kind of one of those kind of guys. You go to church, and then during the week, it didn't seem to line up. And you knew all the stuff you're supposed to do. And uh, finally, that, at that Bible study that day, it was almost like it dropped from my head to my heart. And the Spirit came alive in me. And it was funny. All of a sudden, when I read the Bible, it was, it was interesting. It was, it was not just kind of memory. It wasn't just stories. These parables and everything just came alive in my heart. And that's the day, basically, I began to understand what it was from just going to church and being one of God's children, from being Spirit-led, like Paul says, that being led by the Spirit. So you think being led by the Spirit seems kind of weird, well, that's me, because I feel every day that, that when I wake up in the morning, it's, good morning, Lord, what are we doing today? And that's kind of the attitude. And he directs your path. You, you, he's in everything you do. He's there with you. And so that old nature, that old Charlie that was doing all this stuff, that wretched man basically became crucified with Christ. It's buried and dead. So the swearing, I can, I, still to this day, it, it was almost unbelievable. It was gone. God basically just, it, it just, it was gone. Do I ever get upset and angry? Yeah, but I don't use swear words no more. I said, oh, brother. <laughs> and so, you know, basically, you know, you're just, you're at your, so you just replace it with something. Oh, you understand? Okay, there's an issue here. So there's no use using anything in vain anymore. Might as well say things that are there for you, which my brother is. He's always there for me. Thanks, Mark. Awesome. He, uh, I've seen him mad. It's, oh, brother, uh, just, just for the record. Just seeing the truth of how it affects every person's life is, is what, uh, you know, I hope that each and every one of you can have a story of where it was, it was similar to that, where it's like it affects my real, my real life, our whole life. There is no spiritual life and regular life. We just have one life. What is it for you? Is it spiritual or is it just regular? And so um, this morning, if you're visiting with us, you haven't been here in a while, maybe you just got back from your holidays, um, we are midway through a series on identity. 
And so there's a couple, uh, couple episodes that you may have missed, but you can find those online if you'd like on our website. And I want to just uh, continue on. That's the series that Charlie is mentioning, that, the, that we had been talking the last, well, last week we took a break, but a few weeks back we started talking about the idea that each and every one of us has like, uh, we find our identity in something. There's a primary identifier of, of us. It can be culture, can be who you're married to, can be your past, can be a number of different things. And that, that primary identifier affects a lot of the decisions and other things in your life. For instance, if you identify as Dutch, you know, then yesterday you'd been really sad because, you know, the soccer team lost to Bulgaria of all things, right? And it, it'll affect your moods and because it's, it's part of your identity. And then, you know, when you, you, you know, if you're looking um, to buy something, you're going to be looking for that Dutch deal, right? So it's going to affect how you spend money, and, and it'll, it affects all kinds of different things. It'll affect your choice of language as well, right? If you primarily identify with that. Um, we've been talking about finding, finding the, the, and challenging you to find your primary identifier to be in Christ, because that's who the Bible says we are, and if we get to that spot, it affects every other area of our life. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, said this, Paul wrote to the Romans, it's a verse we've looked at a number of times, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you. Just as Charlie described, it wasn't Charlie transforming Charlie, let God transform you, by ch- and he says, uh, into a new person, by changing the way you think. See, sometimes we want to be transformed, we're just like, God, I got a problem, I'll pray about it, you take care of it and get it out of my way. It doesn't happen that way. There's that process of changing the way you think, and all of a sudden, it drops from here to here, and you're transformed. But it's got to start with here. He's saying there's got to be this change of the way that you think about life. And one of the main things we uh, are challenged and encouraged to change the way we think about is who we really are. Who we really are in Christ. Uh, in Christ, a couple weeks ago, we said you're loved. You know, you're like maybe no one else loves you, but you're loved because Christ loves you. In Christ, you're accepted. Maybe you're trying to earn acceptance everywhere. You already are. And you're forgiven. And you're like, well, you don't know what I did this week. I don't need to know. In Christ, you are forgiven. That's the amazing news of what Christ has done for us. When we sing that song, Good, Good Father, there's a line in there that says, I'm loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am. It's who I am. I'm loved by him. It's who I am. I'm loved by God. You? It's pretty exciting. Think about that just for a second. You are loved by the God of this uh, entire universe. I don't know. I've gone through some hard times lately. I don't think God likes me very much. The problem is God doesn't have love like we are, like we do. He is love. So there's nothing he can't, he can't not love you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. And we'll say it a thousand times. If hearing it will help it to get from here to here, he loves you. Absolutely loves you. But many Christians don't know who they really are in Christ. They're, it's that thing of, you know, I'm, I live my life. Like he said, you know, I've got, I've, got, I've got Jesus with me. My Christianity is an hour of my week, sometimes at Kingsway, sometimes online. But that's kind of my Christianity. And he's like, listen, it's, I want you to realize it's all of your life, the whole part of it. And it's an incredible, incredible thing. But many Christians don't know. They don't know. And that's what we want to talk about this morning is helping you to know. I can't decide what you're going to think, but I can give you some information to help you know. And so we want to talk about that this morning. Um, have you ever gotten uh, those, those emails? Maybe, maybe you've figured out how to finally block all the spam, but you ever get one of those emails that looks something like this, where there's, or there's, a, there's a barrister who's gotten a hold of you, or a lawyer, uh, or is a banker from Nigeria or somewhere else, and they're like, have we got a deal for you, you know? Uh, y- 
I've, you know, I've run into this huge amount of money, but I can't take it out here. I got to transfer it. Just give me your banking information and we'll split the gazillion dollars 50-50. You ever got one of those? And how many of you, you know, how many of you have responded to those? Oh man, I was going to say, I was hoping there was none, but I'll tell you the reason those emails still go around is because people still fall for them. But when you read them, you're like right away, what do you think when someone wants to give you a gazillion dollars? Scam, scam is no, there's no way that this is true. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. But I want to challenge you with this thought this morning. Probably is doesn't mean always is. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And that's how our whole mindset is pre-framed. Ah, it sounds too good to be true, it can't be true. But it's not always. Every once in a while, there's stories like this. December of 2009, the story of Zolt and Giza Pilati, it's these two fellas right here, they were, uh, their story was in the news all over the world. They were two brothers who were living in their 40s. They were living in a cave outside of Budapest, Hungary. They uh, collected scrap metal, uh, and they would sell it to the junkyard, and the two of them would live in this cave. There's a number of caves in that area. Uh, and so that's where uh, these brothers lived and survived. But in, in December 2009, they made national uh, and international headlines because a couple of charity workers who worked in that area who knew them had been con- um, contacted by a couple of lawyers from Germany, and they were looking for these two brothers. What they were coming to bring them the news was that they, they, the lawyers were handling the estate of their estranged grandmother who had recently passed away in Germany. And according to German law, the estate was to be split between any living uh, relatives. Their own mother had passed away, and she had had a toxic relationship with her mother, their grandmother. And so they, they, they didn't even know if their grandmother knew about them. But the, the, the German authorities were looking for anybody who was related. And it turns out that these two brothers and their sister, who was living in the United States at the time, also living in poverty, were to, co, uh, were to, be, to split evenly uh, a fortune of $6.6 billion. $6.6 billion. You know, maybe that's something that you wish happened to you. I don't know if you're like, man, I wish I had a rich Uncle Bobby who lived in Townsend that when he dies, he leaves everything to me. Or, you know, I, I wish I had like a rich, you know, uh, relative in Europe that's going to, you know, he's like, I don't even know about, but I hope they know about me. And they're going to like, somebody's going to come and tell me, you are a millionaire, right? Like, we have these thoughts. And, and for, for many, you think, ah, oh, that could never happen. That could never happen. You know, it, it rarely happens. It never happens, you know. But, but I, I want to I challenge you with that thought, that, that maybe it happens more than we think. We're just not aware of it. And sometimes, just like these guys had an incredible inheritance they knew nothing about. There's other stories as well. There's a story in the Bible I just want to share with you this morning. I wanted to just tell you the story, but I'd rather read it. It's just written just so incredibly. And, and you can follow along. If you have, you know, your Bible, go to 2 Samuel. If you got your version app, just open it, click on the read button, and you can follow along. 2 Samuel chapter 9. I'm just going to wait for you because I'd like you to, to read along with me. Not out loud, but just to follow along so it just gets that story, gets into your heart. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1. It says this, one day, David, you know, we hear lots of stories about King David. You know, David killed Goliath. David had these incredible battles. He had mighty men. He was this awesome guy. Rarely do we hear this story, but it's this one. It says, one day David asked, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom that I I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? So he summoned a man named Ziba, who had been one of Saul's servants. He says, are you Ziba? And the king asked, yes, sir, I am. Uh, The king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? Saul was the previous king, 
and all of his family had passed, uh, uh, him and his sons had passed away in, in battle. And so it says, he said this, if so, I want to show God's kindness to them. And Zebra replied, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He's crippled in both feet. David said, where, where is he? The king asked. In Lodabar, uh, Zeba told him, at the home of Maker, son of Amiel. So David sent for him and brought him from Maker's home. His name was Mephibosheth, and he was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. When he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. And David said, greetings, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth replied, I'm your servant. Don't be afraid, David said. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I'll give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you'll eat here with me at the king's table. Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, Who is your servant that you would show him such kindness to a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Saul's servant, Ziba, and said, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and servants are to farm the land for him and produce food for your master's household. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will eat here at my table. (coughs) Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Verse 11, Ziba replied, Yes, my lord the king, I am your servant, and I will do all that you have commanded. From that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table like one of the king's own sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and from then on, all the members of Ziba's household were Mephibosheth's servants. And Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet, lived in Jerusalem and ate regularly at the king's table. You think that's... An interesting story that maybe you've never heard before, but you may not know how interesting it is. You know, in that time, when when a new king took the throne, oftentimes they would go and they'd find all the relatives of the old king, and they would have them killed. They they, They didn't want anyone to ever come and lay claim to the throne and say, you know, I'm actually the rightful king, and and to take the throne away from the new king. Uh, I don't know if you read the news earlier this month, March 1st, there was a guy named Alan Evans, it's this guy, Uh, uh, he's from Colorado, he he took a a large announcement out in the London Times uh, on March the 1st, claiming that he was the rightful heir and rightful monarch uh, of England, and intends to claim the throne upon Queen Elizabeth's death. Um, you can see the resemblance, right? You... So he's gone through the genealogies and realized that he's actually a closer, a closer um, uh, person to reign than Queen Elizabeth is herself. But out of respect for her, he's going to let her pass away. And then he's going to try and take the throne by force if necessary. That should be a really interesting news story when that happens. But this is what David was trying to avoid. This is why they would go and they would find and hunt them down and have them slaughtered. So when, 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 um, it, when David said to these guys, hey, I want to show this person kindness, it was like, oh yeah, wink, wink, we know. Let's look, for, let's look for all the relatives and find them. So it made perfect sense that David was looking for Mephibosheth. What didn't make any sense was the treatment that Mephibosheth got. This was supposed to be the day, the last day of Mephibosheth's life. Can you imagine that moment? Just picture that for a second. Think of, think of a person who's been living out, um, you know, in this, in this place. He's, he thinks that when the king comes, when the soldiers arrive and knock on the door and say, hey, is Mephibosheth here? And it's like, oh, man, it's the king's soldiers. Like, yeah, we're going to the palace. The king wants to see you. You're like, he's terrified. All the way to that spot, he's in fear. And then he's t- uh, brought before the king, and he just hits the dirt right away. He says, I'm your servant. I'm your servant. He thinks this is going to be the last day of my life. This is how it ends right here. And he doesn't realize that it's actually the first day of the best part of the rest of his life. That, that moment was so not what he expected it was supposed to be like. All that Mephibosheth knows is poverty. He's living in someone else's house. All that Mephibosheth knows is fear. 
fear of being discovered because of his old man. You know, his, the, the, the fact of who his dad was, that's the only reason, you know, that, that he's, he's terrified of being discovered. He's living in pain. Mephibosheth, when, when uh, his nurse found out that David was coming to claim the throne, she was terrified, thinking he's going to kill us. So she picked up the Mephibosheth. He was five years old, took, started running and dropped him breaking both of his legs. We've got amazing medical facilities now that can repair things like that. Not then. From that point, he was crippled for the rest of his life, living in pain and living with no worth. Here he's living in Lodabar with no value at all. He's living in someone else's house. He's got nothing to his name. He's in pain all the time, and he has no sense of value. He says to the king, he says, what, what would you want with a dead dog like me? You know, dogs in that culture were like the cursed animals. They were like worthless, um, no value to them at all. And, and he says, I'm worse than that. I'm not just a dog. I'm a dead dog, which is less valuable. I was going to show a picture, but I thought better of it. <laughs> Can you just picture for yourself that there's this, this thought of the lowest of low is how he saw him. Do you know what? That's why we're talking about this because so many people, that's how they see them. They see themselves in, in, this, in this light that God doesn't see them in. And Mephibosheth sees himself in this place. He comes before the king, has no idea what's about to happen. And then it's like he wins the lottery, or better. You know, it's like better than winning the lottery, to be able to, to live in the king's house. Uh, if you read some of the stories of people who won the lottery, there's lists of people who've won the lottery, and then there's lists of people who have screwed it up. You know, they got, they got millions of dollars and then, you know, moved to Canada and drank it all away. There's others who, you know, had so much money, and then all of a sudden they had all these new friends that thought it was awesome, and then they spent the money. It's almost like the prodigal son story. They left, and, and the end of that story is the guy takes his own life. There was one guy, a guy named Juan Vasquez, I think is his last name. You can just you can look up their stories. It's crazy. He, he spent his last grocery money on a lottery ticket. His wife would send him to the grocery store to buy something, groceries, but he comes back with a lottery ticket, and she's like, what did you do? He, he uh, t- turns in the lottery ticket later for $149 million, and you'd think she would be so thrilled about that. Well, she was, and then she divorced him and took half of it. See, because there's certain things... There's certain things money can't buy, right? You, you can't buy a new wife. You can't buy, a, well, you can't buy a happy wife. You can't, maybe you can make her happy for a while, but you can't buy a new family. You can't buy real friendship. You can't buy that stuff. And yet Mephibosheth wasn't just given food at a table and a new place to stay and the most comfortable beds and all of his needs taken care of. He was given a family. He got to sit at the, at the um, table of the king and be like, one of the king's own sons. Here's the reward. It says in 2 Samuel 9, verse 7. It's not really a reward because he didn't earn it, but here's the treatment. David says to him, one, don't be afraid. Number two, he says, I intend to show you kindness because of the promise that I made to your father, Jonathan. I'm going to give you the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat with me at the king's table. You know, we saw the other list before of the things that all that Mephibosheth knew was, was poverty and fear and pain and no worth. To have that all changed to the other side, which is instead of poverty, he receives property. Instead of pain, he's shown incredible kindness. Instead of um, having no self-worth, he's a king's son. He becomes a king's son. And Mephibosheth knows in that moment as he's laying there, he's in shock. He's like, I don't deserve this treatment for one. You know, he, you can't think that all of his life as he's living here that he was like, 
you know, a faithful supporter of the king, he probably hates the king. You know, the king, he's the one who's going to kill you if he ever finds you. All this angst about it. He knows he didn't do anything to earn David's treatment. Doesn't deserve it. Didn't earn it. So how come? Why? Why is he in this place at this moment where what he should have received was death, and yet what he receives is this incredible treatment? Well, the story begins earlier. It begins so much earlier that Mephibosheth himself doesn't even know the story. And what I find is, and why I want to share about this, so many Christians, there's a story that happened years before you arrived that so many don't really know what that story uh, was for them. Here's the story that uh, happened for Mephibosheth. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1. Now when he had finished speaking to Saul, the, son of, um, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. In verse 3, it says, Then Jonathan, who's the father of Mephibosheth, and David made a covenant. And because he loved him as his own soul, and Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. We don't use that word covenant very often. I was going to ask you, when's the last time you used the word covenant? But if you sang the last song with us, Everbeat, then it was about 15 minutes ago, right? You would, have, you would have sang that word, but maybe you don't really realize, you know, your love, it's, it's like a covenant of old. It's enduring like a covenant of old. Like, okay, that's cool. Sound, that's neat words in a song. We don't really use the word covenant. You know, when's the last time you made a covenant with somebody? You know, you're like, yeah, I'll buy that car. Let's make a covenant. You know, no, you have an agreement. You know, or you make a, sign a contract for something. But so many agreements are broken. So many contracts are broken. This word covenant was something that they regularly practiced in ancient times. It was, their, it was their unbreakable deal that they would make with one another. The word meant to cut. That's, you know, when you get the thing, hey, let's cut a deal. That's where this comes from, this thought of cutting a covenant. And so when David and Jonathan met, they made this covenant agreement with one another, an unbreakable agreement between two people. It's where we get most of the things that we do in wedding ceremonies and marriage come from this idea of two people making an unbreakable covenant. These two guys, it says they would exchange their coats and they'd exchange their bows. And you're like, oh, you just kind of read past that. We don't read into it because we don't do covenants in our, in our culture. But for them, they'd understand that when they gave coats to one another, that was like, I'm giving you all of me. I'm giving you my, who I am. I'm giving you myself. And then when I give the weapons to the other person and I take yours, I'm giving you my protection. No matter what happens, if you get into a fight, I'm there. I will back you up. They would make promises to one another, and then they would cut their hands, and they would grasp hands and mix the blood together. Because for them, they understood that blood was life. When your blood's gone, your life's gone. And so they would grab hold of each other and say, I promise on my life that I will keep these promises to you, to your next generations. As long as I'm alive, I will follow it down to your family. You know, you know, the kids, you know, they poke their fingers and rub the blood together and do blood brother things, you know, when you're a little kid. Anybody else do that back in the day? Now everybody's like, oh, we're so scared of getting diseases. Nobody do anything with blood, right? But back in, back in the day, there was like these little things. But it came from this idea of this, this meant something huge to them, that all I am is yours, all you have is mine. All I am is yours, all you are is mine. And so Jonathan and David, these two people, made this agreement with one another. All I have is yours, David. And he's like, all I have is yours, Jonathan. And so a number of years later, Jonathan dies in battle. He, uh, he leaves behind his five-year-old son. And like we shared, the nurse, afraid that, that, that their lives were in danger, they fled to go into hiding. And so for years and years and years, here they are in hiding. Enough years 
that from age five to the point where he has his own young son, that Mephibosheth has been there in this place called Lodibar, in a place of poverty, in a place of pain, in a place of no self-worth, just, just there, just existing. For some, you've been in that place for a long, long time. You got Jesus, you kind of take him with you. He's kind of like, yeah, I'm, I claim the name of Christian, but you feel these things. There's an emptiness uh, on the inside. All those years he lived in that place because he didn't know that there was a covenant. He didn't know who he really was. He didn't know. He had no idea there was an inheritance there until somebody came looking for him, until somebody came and told him. All throughout the Old Testament, you read about the fact that God had covenants with people. He had this thing of, of I'm going to rescue you, and here's, here's how it's going to work. There was promises, and then they'd be sealed in blood, the blood of sheep, the blood of goats. And it was promises that Israel, you know, they never kept their end of the deal. They'd be like, God, you know, we want all of you. And God's like, okay, I'll give all of you. I want all of you. And they're like, okay, we give all of you until, oh, that looks fun. And they go the other way. And then God's like, well, you broke the covenant. And they would get the negative side of all the covenant stuff every single time. And so a couple of thousand years later, this man named Jesus, you know, we read about him in the New Testament and Jesus is at the very end of his life. He's sitting around a table with his followers. He's sitting around with the 12 disciples. And who were they? They were Jewish men. They were really familiar with this idea of covenant. They had been living based on this promise that God had made to them that someday there would be a Messiah. Well, they're sitting there and Jesus, during dinner, he, he makes this statement in Matthew chapter 26, verse 27 and 28. He says, he took a cup, and this is Jesus. He took a cup of wine. He gave thanks to God for it. He gave them uh, to them, and he said, Each of you drink from this, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It's poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. He says, you know what? There's a new covenant now, and it's good. my blood is going to be the, the, the uh, guarantee of this covenant. It would be a covenant signed on their behalf. He's like, you guys, it wasn't blood in that cup. He's not saying, here, here, take this wine. This is blood. He's saying, this is, a, this is a symbol. This is a reminder for you that there's a new covenant, that there's a, an inheritance for you based on what I'm about to do. And the truth is this, that we, we use this pool as the illustration of being in Christ, but he says that we, believing in Christ and being in Christ, would receive everything as a beneficiary of his covenant. What Christ has already done for us is what we can have now. See, so many don't, don't understand that. It's this thought of, oh, I'm glad God forgave my sins. Now I've got to try and earn his love, or I've got to try and be a better person. I've got to try and do, I've got to do it all on my own. He's like, if you would just realize that all you need to do is be in Christ, the rest of that stuff will simply uh, happen in your life. The New Testament, you know, it's, uh, it's what we have in, the, uh, in our Bibles, really is called the New Covenant. We just don't use that term, but it's a new covenant. It's a new agreement, a new deal. Paul and Peter were two of the people who wrote a lot of the New Testament documents. And what they wrote, they wrote to new believers all over the known world. And they were explaining to those new believers, this is who you are in Christ. This is who you are in Christ. You're loved. You're accepted. You're forgiven. You're loved children. We said that last week. You know, those, those things, or two weeks ago, we talked about you're loved, you're accepted, you're forgiven. For most people, most Christians, they think that they're on their way to that. They're becoming better people. They're becoming more loved, becoming forgiven. He says, you're not becoming that. You already are that. Paul wrote to the Ephesians and he said, you know what? You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. 
You already have every spiritual blessing. He said if, uh, to the Romans, he said, if we're his children, then we're heirs. The same thing as Mephibosheth sat at the table of the king. He was just like one of the king's sons. God's saying the same thing to you. He's like, you're my children. You get the same inheritance that Jesus got. He said, if this, if, if, uh, and here's the amazing things. In Corinthians, he says this, that Jesus became sin for you so that you become righteous in him. Not you become righteous because you behave better. You know, you go to church more often, you behave. He says, that's not how this works. I'm going to send my sinless son to become sin for you so that you become righteous in him. He said that to the Corinthians later, he became poor so that you could become rich. He became wounded, he said with Peter, so that you can be healed. This is what Christ did for us so that in him we can have these things. Um, and, And for some, this is the point where a lot of messages stop, and this is the point where a lot of doctrines stop on this, uh, and they kind of plateau here. And what happens for so many, you're like, so you're like, this sounds a little bit like health and wealth gospel. See, the truth is that that is what Jesus has done for us. The point is that that's not the actual point of why he did it for us. Just because some have taken it and misused it doesn't mean that it's not true. It's true that Christ became sin so that I can be righteous. It's true that he became poor so I can become rich. But it's not in the way that so many think. It wasn't that he became sin so I can just sin all I want because I'm forgiven. It wasn't that he became poor so that I can become financially rich and successful here in North America. That's not why he did it. It wasn't the end of Mephibosheth's story and it's not the end of ours. And I just want to share with you as we uh, close this this morning the, where Mephibosheth's story ended and where ours can as well. 2 Samuel chapter 19, number of years later, David, his own son is trying to take over the throne. And so David is kind of, he, he flees for his life. And as he's out there, he wants Mephibosheth to come with him. But Mephibosheth gets tricked, and because he can't, he can't walk, he asks his servant, get me a donkey so I can go with the king. And, and, and his servant tricks him and says, oh, I'll just leave him there, and I'll just tell the king that he never wanted to go. That Mephibosheth is back at home trying to take over the kingdom too, and, and because he thinks he's the rightful heir. And so David is out here like, oh, you know what? And he says to Ziba, he's like, fine, you can have all of his stuff if he's going to treat me like that after everything I've done for him. Well, then David comes back, and Mephibosheth meets him and says, King, I'm so glad you're home. I didn't cut my hair. I didn't cut my toenails. I didn't do anything until you got home. I've missed you that much. I wouldn't suggest you do that, you know, when your spouse comes home. You're like, hey, I've missed you this much. But he, he shows after months and months and months that this is how much I've missed. I've missed you. And King David's like, well, I've already, you know, Ziba told me this. I gave him all the property. And so here's what, here's what Mephibosheth says to King David. He says, all my relatives and I, could expect only death from you. That's what we expected was death. But instead, you've honored me by allowing me to eat at your own table. What more could I ask for? You've said enough, David replied. I've decided that you and Ziba will divide the land equally between you. So David comes up with a deal. And here's my favorite part. He says this, give him all of it. Mephibosheth's response is just give him all of it. He said, I'm content just to have you. I'm content just to have you back um, safely again, my Lord, the King. Mephibosheth cared more about his benefactor than he did the benefits. Mephibosheth cared much more about the benefactor than the benefits, and that is the key for us as well. You know, the, the idea of just like the, all of the things of the healing, the forgiveness, the, the, the riches, the whatever that we have in Christ is amazing, but he, don't get your eyes on it. That, that's just gravel compared to him. He's the gold. 
He's the gold. And as I, I thought, how can I illustrate this? Of course, i got to go back to my ever favorite, the difference between cats and dogs. Because um, it, it's powerful. It really is. You know, cats, when, they, when cats, in the mind of cats, this is their thoughts. They think about their master. He feeds me. He loves me. He gives me a warm house. He pets me. He takes care of me. I must be a god. The dog says, my master feeds me. He loves me. He warms me. He pets me. He takes care of me. He must be a god. Which one are you more like? Woof, woof over here, right? <laughs> Don't lose the power of this point is, is this thought that for us, what Christ has done for us says a whole lot about Christ. That our eyes would not be, you know, so much on us and what I'm doing, how much I'm doing. It's just my eyes are on Christ. He is amazing. That out of that, these things change. Do you know, do you know that what Christ did on the cross for you has washed all of your past away? Has taken care of all of the things in your life? Has, has set you free that you can just say, sin's not my master anymore because I got a new master and he's a good one? That all of those things are true for you already. And the only thing that's stopping you right now, the only thing that's stopping you is knowing about it. That either you don't, you know, Mephibosheth was given all this stuff. He didn't do, well, I shouldn't say he didn't do anything because there is one thing Mephibosheth had to do and we do as well. Mephibosheth, that moment on the floor when David said to him, listen, here's what I'm going to do for you. Mephibosheth had one decision. And when Christ says, this is what I've done for you, I've forgiven you, I love you, you're accepted, you're my child, you can have all of that stuff. One thing Mephibosheth had to do, one thing we have to do is he had to be willing to leave this life behind. He had to be willing to say, okay, I'm willing to move out of that house I was renting, I'm willing to, you know, give up being, living in poverty and pain and all, I'm willing to leave all that behind. I'm willing to leave my identity there and become one of the king's sons. That's what he's calling us to do. That same thing, to just leave life of me trying to do it on my own, me being the boss of my life, me with all of my darkness and whatever else. He's like, just leave that behind and come follow me. Come be a child of God. It's incredible. See, we always think that the gospel is like that. Oh, just accept Jesus in your heart and you're good. He's like, I'm not giving you just this little bit of me. I'm giving you all of me, and in return, I want all of you. I want your Monday, your Tuesday, your Wednesday, your Thursday. I just want to do life with you. It's what I paid an incredible price for. You know, we sing those songs, my whole life is yours. My whole life becomes about Christ. I'm, there's a song playing in our house all the time. I'm no longer a slave to fear. Do you know what the next line is? I am a child of God. I'm not a slave to fear. I'm a child of God. There's something so exciting about that when you get it. My hope and prayer is that you get it, that your response would be, God, you truly are amazing, rather than, God, don't hit me for all the bad stuff I've done. God, you're truly amazing. May your praise be on my lips because of what you've done. It's not about what I've done. It's not what I did there. It's not what I did here. It's what you've done for me. That the Colossians... You'd be able to say that I might know all that he has done for me. And what Paul wrote to the Philippians, that I might know him. That I'd know him, know all he's done for me, and that that would transform my life into who he's designed for me to be. That's what the gospel is all about. That's the offer on the table for all of you here this morning. If you're not a follower of Jesus, he's inviting you in. He's inviting you into to an amazing life. It's not a life that's perfect here, but you got him. 
You know, I watch my family walk through difficult times. It's amazing how they walk through with him. They're sharing joy and hope all over a hospital when everyone else is like, how do you have joy and hope? You've got a daughter with cancer. I got him. I got him. Do you? You can this morning. It's that simple thing that offers on the table for you that Christ has already done everything to invite you into a life now and forever. Just takes you responding to that. And I would encourage you to do so. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, for your incredible, incredible gift. Your gift of love, your gift of life, your gift of forgiveness, your gift of freedom, but most of all, your gift of friendship and relationship with you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for calling me your son. I gladly call you father, and you are a good, good father. And I pray that today, Lord, that as people leave this place, that by your spirit, you'd light that up on the inside. As they go to your word and seek out your word to know who you really are and what you've done for them, that it would transform their lives that their identity would be in you and who you are and that that would be enough. That we'd say in Christ alone, all our hope is found. That in Christ alone is just who I, is where I want to be found. Father, thank you again for this time together. Pray your blessing uh, on the rest of our day as we live it with you. In your name, for your glory, pray. Amen.